If you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to 1st John, chapter 1, it's page 1225 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Uh, today we're, we're starting a new series called Walk This Way, which is uh, going to take us into this relatively short New Testament letter and epistle. We're actually going to spend eight Sunday mornings working our way through its, its five chapters. But before we get into this, uh, let me explain the title for this series. Uh, for some of you of a certain age, uh, whenever you hear those three words, walk this way, you will immediately think of a song and you will start singing it in your head. So let's deal with that and get it out of the way. So who can tell me who sang walk this way or at least who originally sang it and then who covered it and brought it to a wider audience? So who originally sang it? Aristotle. Aris- sad, Alan. Sad. Uh, and who then brought it to a wider audience? It's even sadder, Alan. Although Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes did sing a version of it in 2007 as the official comic release song, but let's not go there. Okay, but why have I called this series Walk This Way? Well, one of my favourite quotes, or one of my favourite verses from this entire book is this. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or to put that slightly differently, this time using the Pew Bible version, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And it seems that if you claim to be a Christian, and I know there are many people here this morning who claim to be a Christian, but if you do then you must walk as Jesus walked. I kind of want you to think back over the past week. Just how you've lived your life. The choices you've made. The comments you've offered. The words you've spoken. Your actions and your behaviour. Could you say, could I say, I have walked as Christ walked this week. It's an incredible calling and it's a massive challenge but it's also an exciting possibility. And so contained within this letter we're going to discover over the next couple of months is John's advice and instruction and insight on how to walk this way, the way of Jesus. So if you're a Christian then I hope and pray that as we journey through this series that you will be encouraged and you will be stretched in your commitment to walk as Christ walked. And if you're not yet a Christian, then it would be amazing if during this series you were able to catch a fresh glimpse of Jesus and who he claimed to be and then begin to walk as he walked. So let's uh, stand together if you are able to and comfortable enough to do that uh, and let's read God's word together. So let's stand. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our or your joy complete. Yes. Just three initial comments. The first is that apart from one other epistle, and please do tell me afterwards which is the other one, okay? but apart from one other epistle, this is the only one that jumps straight in. There is no general introduction. There is no dear whoever. doesn't appear to be directed to a particular person or a bunch of people. It's not directed to a local church or a specific congregation. And therefore you could say, here is a letter that goes out to all of us. To each and every local church there and then and ever since. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, but is there not a sense in which that's true of every New Testament letter? Yes. They do connect and say something to lots of people beyond their original audience. But this one, 1 John, seems to be more intentional about that. It's straight in with the content. There's no greetings. There's no pleasantries. There's just this sense of urgency and energy that the writer wants to bring. Second comment regards the theme or the central focus which is very clearly Jesus. We're definitely going to consider and look at lots of different issues and areas of importance during this series. But everything that is written in this letter, and hopefully everything that I am going to say during these next eight weeks, is with the explicit intention of drawing attention to and highlighting Jesus. And I need to say that right from the outset. That's what this series is all about. Turning the spotlight on Jesus as John does here. And the third comment is about the author, the Apostle John, who by the time of writing this letter is a a pretty old guy. And he's almost finished his race. And he's finishing really well. And he's passionate about Jesus. He loves Jesus. Jesus loves him. It's why he was known as the beloved Disciple, And it's obvious as you read this letter that he wants other people to love Jesus as he loved Jesus. And so I suppose again, just as we start this series, as you come to church this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to walk as he walked? Is that your heart's desire over and above everything else? You want to reflect Jesus to a watching, listening world. Now for John who who writes this letter, it's about 60 years after Jesus has gone home to be with his father. So it's about AD 90. And there are a number of things that have prompted him to sit down and actually pen these words. First off, the early church has grown or is growing. 
But many who were part of the early church or who were joining it did not have the benefit of hearing Jesus speak firsthand. They weren't there or they hadn't been there in person to witness the work and ministry of Jesus. Whereas John and others did have that awesome, and I do use that word deliberately, they had that awesome privilege. And so before John dies, he wants to share his personal, and they are very personal stories and discoveries and core reflections. And via this letter, John does exactly that. He wants to get this message out to as wide an audience as possible. Say more about that in a moment. But the second prompt, or the second motivator for writing this letter, was the dark presence of false teachers. They crept into the church. And in this letter, he doesn't just call them false teachers, he also calls them deceivers, or anti-Christs. Part of what they were doing was they were denying that Jesus was really, fully human. Couldn't have been. Never was. Never intended to be. Hold that thought. And John was adamant that these false teachers, these deceivers, these anti-Christs need to be exposed. They need to be confronted in order that new Christians and young Christians would not get distracted. In order that these new Christians, young Christians would not take their eyes off Jesus and end up getting embroiled in stupid, pointless arguments and debates and deceptions. It still happens today. So many people taking their eyes off Jesus and getting caught up in all sorts of secondary, unimportant, pointless discussions and arguments. And so with all that as a kind of backdrop, I want us to carefully listen to this opening paragraph. Let me say that we need to listen carefully. And the reason we need to listen carefully is because what John says and all the ideas he has kind of just come tumbling out the wording of this preface is now let's be honest it's a bit awkward it doesn't exactly flow you read a letter that Paul writes or even one that Peter writes and there kind of seems to be a bit of a flow to it read this letter and it's a wee bit all over the place incredibly repetitive he keeps saying things and then coming back and saying them again and adding a wee bit more to them and all of that. And so many people struggle with First John. And it's one of the reasons why it's not really a letter that's very often spoken from in this sort of context. Because people find it difficult to work their way through it. Because it doesn't flow. And so what I really need you to do is I need you to kind of commit yourself to engage as much as you can with it. Because we need to be listening carefully to it. So, deep breath, let's go. I just mentioned uh, John's awesome privilege. Well, let me tease that out a bit more. Because in these opening remarks, John actually goes out of his way to state and to stress why anybody should listen to him. Right from the, This is what he's about here in this, this preface. He actually goes out of his way to encourage people that he is worth listening to. Why? It's because he was there. You see, for three years... John had spent time with Jesus. Not just some time, but lots of it. He had breakfast, lunch, 
dinner with Jesus on most days. He was there for the first miracle. He heard most of the things that Jesus said publicly. And then he was also able to discuss lots of those things with Jesus and with the other disciples privately. John was privy to key moments in the life of Jesus. Anytime Jesus took a small intimate group with him for whatever reason, and there were lots of those occasions, John always included. He was the one Jesus spoke to from the cross. He was the one who was first to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning when he outran Peter. And so as John starts this letter, he makes the point that Jesus, this word of life who appeared, was someone who he, along with others, and hence the reason he talks in terms of we, Jesus was someone he had heard with his own ears, seen with his own eyes, touched with his own hands. And John doesn't just say that once in those opening sentences. Glance down through those four verses and you'll see he says it twice. Maybe even three times. And what he's emphasizing is, listen, see everything I'm about to say has got credibility. Everything I'm about to say has weight. It's true. It's not made up. It's not hearsay. It's not second-hand information. I've seen. I've listened to. I've touched. See, there is no testimony from antiquity, from the ancient past, more credible than that of an eyewitness. These uh, past couple of weeks, and this weekend in particular, have seen a massive interest or renewed interest in the Titanic. hundred years since its doomed maiden voyage. Many people have been to the Titanic experience. Anybody been to it? We need to get out more. <laughs> uh, many people have seen the new impressive Titanic building. Yeah, great. Lots of people see it. Now I know if you go to the Titanic experience, I'm not going to ruin it for you, okay? but if you go to the Titanic experience, there is a whole section entitled Myths and Legends. And you can delve into any aspect of the epic saga to learn more about the fantasies that have grown up around the Titanic story. And there are lots of them. But ultimately, the Titanic experience has been based on eyewitness accounts. From the stories of survivors, crew and passengers, and people who were there. And therefore, the vast majority of what you encounter in that place and through that experience carries weight. It's credible. And few people would argue with the vast majority of what you find in that incredible building. And when it comes to Jesus, we do have the testimonies of a number of eyewitnesses, including the Apostle John. Now I know that down through the years there have been many myths and legends that have grown up around Jesus. Tons of them. They're grown up all the time. And Jesus has had, and he still has, his fair share of critics. It's an understatement. Lots of people have written articles, books, especially within the past 100 years, about what Jesus didn't do, and about what Jesus didn't say, and about the miracles Jesus didn't perform. But here's the thing. Every single one of us, 
and every single human being alive on this planet is going to have to decide that when it comes to Jesus, whose testimony do we consider to be the most credible? Either it's the words of an eyewitness like John who spent three years in the immediate and intimate presence of Jesus, or it's the perspective of people who are writing literally thousands of years after these events. At the end of the day, that is your call and that is mine. Do we accept what John writes here or not? John starts his letter by letting all readers know that he had a very personal connection with Jesus. I listened. I watched. I handled. This is no figment of my imagination, he says. But as we wrestle with what John tells us about Jesus, there is a very definite sense that we're about to enter the realms of mystery. Deep theology. Dangerous doctrine. So we need to take another deep breath. I'm sure some of you picked up on the fact that John starts this letter in a similar vein to how he started his gospel. A number of you did. I know that. He starts right back at the beginning. So in his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he goes on to say, the Word became flesh, lived among us, dwelt among us. Here in 1 John 1, 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, this we proclaim concerning the Word, the, life, the Word of life, the life appeared. And both of those comments seem to be echoes of Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. And so what John is saying again is that this word of life, this living, breathing message of life, who appeared in the flesh at a particular time, that we seen, that we heard, that we touched, he was actually... What I'm about to say now is huge. This is one of these majestic realities that deserve regular reflection and meditation. But this word of life, who appeared in the flesh at a particular point in time, was actually there from the very start. He was there from creation. He's not part of creation. He's no beginning. He's no ending. He was actually there with God the Father whenever time began as we know it. In other words, this word of life who took on flesh is pre-existent. He said, you need, to, you need to stay with me here. This is massive what John said. And what he's doing right from the outset of his letter, and he can't get this out quick enough, and that's why he says it in the preface, he just can't get it out quick enough, is he's affirming the fact that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Something that these false teachers were denying and diluting. Now I'm not going to be able to totally explain what that means. 
But that is what John was wanting to affirm. This Jesus that lived amongst us for a period of time was there from the beginning. Get your head round that somehow. Jesus was God with skin on. And then, as if heads are not spinning enough, take a look at verse 2 with me. Because what he then says is, this word of life is, and he calls him this, eternal life. It's on the screen there. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. In other words, Jesus is the source of life as it was meant to be. Life in all its fullness. A quality of life that is actually available now and never lets up. In fact, one day, someday, it's going to get even better. Back in his gospel, John had announced, listen, God loves this world so much. And he loves this world so much that he has given you, he has given us his only son. The reason he's given us his only son is so that those who believe in him can have what? Everlasting eternal life. Jesus is the source. Jesus alters. Jesus changes. Jesus transforms life. Eternal life is better than life itself. And so all of what John is saying here, just in these four verses, is life-defining. Here is the word of life. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. He's pre-existent, fully human, fully divine. And he is eternal life. He is the source of life as it's meant to be. You need to walk this way. And as he continues to write, and in a sense continues to spill out his guts, his motivation then becomes increasingly clear and increasingly breathtaking. Look at verse 3, because here's the reason he's proclaiming all of this. He's saying, so that those reading it might now have fellowship with John, with the other original disciples and witnesses, and with the Father and the Son. In other words, this was about urging others to join and be part of this amazing kononia, this amazing fellowship, this dynamic, interconnected, life-enhancing, sharing community. That's what this is all about. This is not a closed, inaccessible, exclusive community. No, anyone, is what John's saying, anyone, and this is a key point of his letter, anyone who hears these truths about Jesus, who embraces what I'm saying about Jesus, that he was the pre-existing word of life who became one of us. He is the source of eternal life. You see, if you accept this and you believe this, you can now, you can now come into fellowship with us, with the Father, with the Son. Even though You never touched him. You never heard him. You never seen him. And so as we sit here this morning, 2,000 years after the physical appearance of the word of life, the point for us is we're not excluded. You and I can still come into this fellowship, this friendship, this connection, This community with those who were there with Jesus. 
and we can come into connection and community with the Father and with the Son who are in perfect community. It's mind-expanding stuff. And it's one of the reasons why engaging with these eyewitness accounts is so important and it's why engaging with this is central to everything we do here at Windsor. Now I know that for some people it can seem slightly strange that by simply telling people about Jesus as John is doing here and as we attempt to do in our verbal communication that that would seem to be please get this that would seem to be the appointed means by which the incredible reality of this fellowship can be extended to new members. That's the way it now works. God has spoken in Jesus. So the word of life becomes flesh and blood. He moves into our neighbourhood for a specific period of time. He lives among us. He dies. He rises again. He goes home to be with the Father. And now... God speaks through the words which his friends speak and write about him. With the intention and hope that those who hear will come to share in this fellowship. And that is the reason we're reading this. And re-reading it. And why as a church we must never stop reading this. Remember what uh, Jesus said to Thomas after he shifted from doubt to belief as a result of seeing the physical Jesus? You believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. You see, not not one of us has seen Jesus. But many of us believe and we're blessed. And many of us enjoy the fellowship with the Father and the Son. And the key reason for this privilege is via our reading and engagement with the words that have been written about it. So let's continue to read. Let's keep listening and let's join in. Final comment. And this is how John closes his preface. And here's another explicit intention in writing this. He says, listen, we write this. Why? To make our joy or your joy, depending on the translation you have in front of you, to make it complete. You see, there is nothing that completes joy more fully than whenever people grasp this. There is nothing completes joy more fully than whenever people come into fellowship with one another and with God. Whenever someone, anyone responds positively to the written and proclaimed word of God... The Bible teaches they experience joy, a deep, abiding joy that helps bring perspective to so much of life in the midst of mess. We're not talking about happiness. We're not talking about some deeper level of happiness. Joy is a God-given, God-infused, experiential reality that can be known, that can be felt, that can be valued, no matter what is kicking off in your life or around your life. And it is a real privilege to sit down with some of you who are really going through the mill at the moment. 
And yet, you know a joy in God. A deep, abiding joy in the midst of mayhem. And whenever people come into this connection and community with one another and with God, then that joy is complete. And in addition, for those of you who have a, a version that sort of says, you make our joy complete. Do you know there is nothing that completes or creates or should create more joy for those of us who are Christians than whenever we see others embracing Jesus. Believing what has been written about him and joining the family of God. There's nothing she'd complete our joy more than that. And so we can never be indifferent about getting these words out there and sharing this with our families and friends and colleagues and people we socialize with. Need to finish. I know it's only four verses, it's only the introduction, it's only the opening comments, but John, if you like, has set out a stall. The focus is Jesus. He's been there from the beginning. He's the word of life. He's the message of life. He's eternal life. For a certain amount of time, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And now, it's our desire to tell you about him so that you can enjoy fellowship with us, and with the Father, and with the Son. So please, says John, read on and discover more. And that's what we'll do in the next seven weeks.